Good morning and welcome again to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I am the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church. We are a church that is led by elders. Uh, I am not the only pastor here. There are eight of us total. Uh, and we are glad you're here, not just the elders, but the entire body congregation is glad that you have joined us in worship today. Uh, Ron and Debbie Stafford are dear friends as well as uh, missionaries that our church supports. Years ago when we met Ron and Debbie and they went to Columbia, uh, Linda, my wife, who has since gone to be with Jesus. But at the time, Linda kept saying, we've got to support Ron and Debbie. I said, I can't do, I can't say that. They're family. And then two elders said, we've got to support Ron and Debbie. And I thought, I said, really, you think so? Yeah. And so we're glad. And, and by the way, Ron wanted to make sure that you understood that he meant to say, he's passing it off to age. I have no patience with that whatsoever. What was I going to say? Um, Ron wanted you to know that he wants a, a, a group to come down to Columbia next year and uh, get some cheap vegetables and fruits. And uh, getting them back may be problematic. But we can certainly enjoy that and ministry. They're just hungry for Bible teaching. There are colleges that are right between two universities. Street evangelism is... Uh, it is fairly accepted in Colombia. So relatively small group, six to eight people. Um, first come, first serve. We'll take the first ones who say that you'll be going. Um, if you'll pay for my trip, it'll be, you know, you'll be higher up the list. Just kidding. And by the way, Debbie, just go ahead and admit coffee is an addiction. It's a happy addiction. It is a happy addiction. Well, um, Jesse Carey, in a recent article in Relevant Magazine titled Showing Grace in the Era of Outrage, said it's hard to love your enemies when you spend most of your time being angry with them. Then he went on to say, when we don't reserve our anger for genuine cases of injustice and victimization, our outrage loses its power. Some things are worth outrage, some things are not. Are you as weary as I am with moral outrage being expressed 24-7 by immoral people? That's not an indictment about any specific individual. That's an indictment of the entire human race. We are all immoral to the core, totally depraved. If you're not outraged by that comment, somebody will be when they listen to the podcast. How dare you call me immoral? Now look, you can get away with it in a group setting. Try saying that to a small group at the office. How dare you call me immoral? I will have you know I do not cheat on my spouse. I don't cheat on my taxes. And I serve at the homeless shelter once a week. Not once a month, once a week, mind you. Well, that's very nice. I'm glad to hear it. But you need to know that you are a sinner, hopelessly and helplessly lost without God unless he intervenes in your life. That's not my view of things. That's what the Scripture says. Oh, no. Scripture tells me that if I'm good, God will be pleased. He will accept me. 
Scripture doesn't say that, though. I mean, there's enough that you can read that belief into the Scripture if you want to. You can pull a verse here and pull a verse there, but it's not what Scripture says. You don't have to look too deeply into the Bible to see that apart from Jesus, not one of us is in any better standing. None of us is better in God's sight than the worst sinner we know. We're all helpless and hopeless without Jesus. But I was taught and I have believed my entire life. Indeed. Furthermore, if we can find something about someone else that will incite our moral outrage, then we'll feel better about ourselves, won't we? This has been the false cry of the ages. Live as you should and all will go well with you. If someone suffers, then it must be karma. He deserves what he gets in the big scheme of things. But don't you know, the closer error is to truth, the more dangerous it is. Now, if you're here for the first time, you most likely think this is a bold introduction. And it is indeed. But it comes as we begin to move to the middle part of our study about suffering in the book of Job, where many of these very questions were being raised. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection were some 2,000 years into the future. Almost certainly Job lived around the time of Abraham. He lived east and a little south of where Abraham was. But So Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection were in the future. But it's as is true in all of the Old Testament, God was pointing to Jesus. And Jesus sacrificed on the cross for sin and for sinners. That's why we began this series with, with a message on hope. The hope of perfection in eternity that is promised for those who believe in Jesus as it's taught in Romans 8. Again, the Old Testament can't be read apart from the New. So let's start here, get perspective before we go back and start trying to dissect the book of Job. The, the historical drama recorded in the book of Job begins with a a scene in heaven where God is bragging on Job and Satan says, yeah, as Christopher Ash said, he loves you like your children, like children love the ice cream truck, you know, ice cream man. As long as he's given out goodies, you, you bless Job. Why wouldn't he love you? Touch him though. Take everything that he has, including his health, his children, his health, take it all away and he will curse you to his face. Job didn't know any of that, of course. And when disaster after disaster struck him, he lost everything, and yet he praised the Lord. Initially, that is. But the suffering didn't go away. His friends, and every indication is that these were good friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar came to comfort him. But Job and his three friends just sat in silence for seven days until finally Job said, this really hurts, and it hurts at the level I wish I had never been born. Well, today we're going to begin to hear the comfort that these three friends offered Job. 
Uh, they came from lands that were known for the wise men in those lands, but their collective conclusion was one of judgment. God was meeting out justice on Job. His three friends had a very simple understanding of God and how the universe works. One, God is good. Two, God always does what is right. Three, if you are suffering, then it's because you have done something wrong. He blesses the righteous. He sends trials to the evil. He punishes the evil. So with such an understanding, it was quite easy for Job's friends to conclude that Job had some secrets in. He must have some secrets in in his life. And he was finally getting his just desserts. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar were quite smug in the judge's seat. And when Job refused to agree with their judgments, they were morally outraged. Since we're looking at general themes in the book of Job, uh, most of the texts that we read between now and the climax at the very end where God speaks to Job and he repents and is restored, um, they're going to be representative in nature. In a few weeks, we'll hear from Zophar, whose speeches will drip with condemnation. Today, the focus is on Eliphaz and, and Bildad, who are quite judgmental in their comments. Today's reading is going to be the fourth chapter of Job. Again, it's just a representation. We'll look at some of the other texts from chapter 5 and 8 just briefly. But while we do, look, look for these um, three components of Eliphaz's first speech to Job. One, you've been a pretty good guy, Job. You have. Two, however, you must have done something wrong because God doesn't punish the innocent. And three, in fact, God told me this in the form of a spirit. He spoke privately to me in a vision in the night. And he told me this is so. Are you ready for Eliphaz? And stand with me if you would as I read from chapter 4 of the book of Job. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you. By the way, remember, this comes after Job's expressions of deep agony. And saying, I wish I'd never been born. Oh, cursed is the day when someone said you have a child and it's a man child that's been born. This is what Eliphaz says. If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling. And you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember who that was innocent ever perished. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. 
the roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now, Job, a word was brought to me stealthily. My ears received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. That's a serious vision, isn't it? How are you going to how are you going to dispute this? How are you going to dispute it when someone says God came to me in a dream and told me something about you? What are you going to say to that? But I, God told me and I know. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? See, there's, there's truth in all of this. That's what makes it so... There's truth that's kind of interlaced. In everything that these guys say, which makes it so difficult sometimes to discern. Even in his servants, he puts no trust. And his angels, he charges with error. How much more than those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? And thus concludes the extremely kind and gentle portion of Job's friends' speeches. We have heard from Job's comforters. Let's pray. Lord, God forbid that we have comforters such as these. Oh, God forbid, even more so, that we be these kinds of comforters. It's within us, Lord, to judge people, to judge motives, to judge things about which we have no right judging. And yet you have called us to judge and discern, so it's tricky. And I pray that you will cause us to rest this day on the judgment that Jesus took on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Someone said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. And that's exactly what Job's friends did. Uh, They fashioned a God that fit their stories. You know, we're, we're pretty good people. Uh, why wouldn't we? We're morally upright. Why wouldn't we be independently wealthy? We treat others fairly. We're hard workers. No wonder. We have never had as much as Job, mind you. <laughs> but maybe, maybe, just maybe, we're finding out something we didn't know about Job. I mean, Job obviously 
you have sinned before our holy God and you'd better do some repenting, son. It's a fearful thing to presume to speak for God. We better let God speak for himself and not say anything about him that he does not reveal about himself. To speak wrongly about God, that's a dangerous thing. Some of the meanest people you will ever meet are those that know that you have done something wrong and they are certain that they have God on their side. That's why they feel comfortable rebuking you. See, one of the problems that bubbles just under the surface in a life of success and ease is that we begin to think that we're responsible for all the success that we've had in life. Furthermore, we didn't get there because we had poor judgment. Our instincts are good. We know people. And so I've been fooled before, but I think I'm right about you. I think there's something going on that we don't know about. Job knew better, initially, anyway. Shall we receive good and not evil from the Lord, from the hand of the Lord? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In time, though, the questions set in. What did I do? What's worse, Job's friends, truly known for their wisdom, ask the same question. What did you do, Job? Come on. Confess. You know, it's like one of those cop shows. Just tell it. You'll feel better. And he's under the light, but Job doesn't cave. Give a false confession. What did you do, Job? Not only do we think that we can understand the ways of God, but we've got enough sense to discern what's going on here. We know right and wrong, and you, sir, are wrong. In the process of their rebuke, Eliphaz and Bildad said some cruel things. First Eliphaz in Job 5. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn, big boy? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. Now this seems a little close to the bone, don't you think? They are crushed in the gate, and there's no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of his thorns. This is really not as cruel as it sounds. You know, one of the things about Job that's so, it's just so right, is that almost all of it is poetry. And poetry is different from prose. Prose is sort of telling you facts. Poetry complicates matters considerably. I mean, it's hard to understand. It flows. It takes licenses. It can use poor grammar. It doesn't matter. It just, you know, poetry. But it's perfect for Job because none of this makes sense. And he's working it out. And it doesn't get worked out immediately. In fact, some poetry never gets worked out. Right? 
This one has an ending, but a lot of poetry doesn't. Eliphaz is not as direct as he seems here. He's essentially saying, Job, come on, man, repent. God will restore you. You've done some bad things, but it'll be all right. What Eliphaz lacked in directness was covered with the first words out of Bildad's Bildad's mouth. Job 8. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Well, look, we've all felt like saying that, haven't we? Uh, Bildad did. He just said it. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? Come on, you think God did this to you? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them in the hand of their transgression. Boy, that's a real beauty, isn't it? Someone told me when my wife was sick, or they told me through someone else, if Brad doesn't let us pray for her, the Lord has revealed to us she's going to die. Maybe in one of those spirits in the night, it was revealed. That's just cruel. It's cruel. You ever had people accuse you of sin like this? Do they in fact quote scripture in their charge against you? Even worse, do they say that God told them something about you? Sounds like Eliphaz. Sounds like Bildad. Have you been tempted to do the same, to accuse someone of improper motives or hidden sin? Best be careful. You best be careful. God doesn't take such accusations lightly. But we get in a pattern of it. And it's just excited It's exacerbated when we're morally outraged about everything. And we get in a pattern and we think this is the way God wants us to live. To be the man, be the woman who says, that's wrong. I'm speaking for God. Listen, I recognize that there are spiritual gifts that seem to indicate some people are given unusual discernment about the body, within the body. But use such gifts with great care. You know, when I was young, I used, to, I used to think it a great privilege when people would come to me and say, I've got a concern. I don't know what to do about it. I, I thought it was a great privilege to help people think through. And that's still what I try to do is I just help you think through the situation. But every once in a while... I have to speak for God and say what you're doing is wrong. I don't take that lightly. I don't take it lightly when you say, what do you think I should do in this case when there's no clear instruction from Scripture? And I say, well, you know, here are two or three options, but this seems to be the best option to me. You think that's a light thing? Because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that this is advice that really comes from God. It's not, but you think it is. And whenever you speak as a person who is giving advice, biblical, godly wisdom, others are taking your advice as from the Lord. 
That's a serious thing. Be careful, especially when you say, thou art wrong. It must be said sometimes. You're going to talk about that in home group this week. There's a, there's a difference. We can't just sit idly by and say everything is okay. That's not at all what I'm arguing for. Look, if you come on one Sunday and hear a message, chances are you're going to say, boy, I disagree with a lot of that. If you come a whole year, I doubt you're going to disagree with that. It's one side of the coin. We're, we're addressing one issue today. The tendency that good friends, believers, have to judge one another when they ought not to be judging. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the works of the law. What we can know for certain about God's will and about God's ways is found in his word. Everything else is speculation, including God told me I'm supposed to do this. God may have told you that, but he may not have told you that. Or he may have told you that. Leading you into a Job-like situation. We can't make sense. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. I'm not trying to take away your understanding of the Holy Spirit impressing on our hearts. But what we can know for sure about God's will for our lives is revealed to us in the word. Now, our speculation about what we should do or about the way the Lord is leading us, is an, it could be from a, a, a number, large number of factors, such as the Holy Spirit working in our lives, such as our speculation being rooted firmly in biblical principles, even if it's not a specific thing, a specific command. And, and based on years of observing God's work in your own life and in the lives of others. But even so, a lot of it is speculation. Be very careful when you offer advice, and especially be careful about judgmental statements. Jesus himself warns about this in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, this is clearly one of the most abused verses in our time. Judge not that you be not. How dare you judge? Look, if the word says it, it ain't judging. It's just stating the word of the Lord. You're going to be accused of judging. How can you say such a thing? But he's talking to believers and he's he's warning us against judging people in a certain way. We'll talk about it as we go. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. If we really believe that, it'd pull us up short sometimes, wouldn't it? And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We tend to treat other people the way that we want them to treat us. If you're an encourager, you want encouragement. If you you give it straight, you want it straight, you know. How about treating others the way you want God to treat you? Because that's what he's going to do. That's what he tells us over and over. You don't forgive others, uh, that's a problem. 
You want to judge others? That's a problem. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is your own eye? It'd really be more appropriate for me to just sit down here and read this from down here, being preached to as well as preaching. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is not saying we should never make judgments. He's In fact, the very next verse, verse 6, he talks about discernment. Don't give to dogs what is holy. Don't throw your pearls before swine. You have to make assessments about people, not just things, but about people. So he's not saying never make judgments, particularly with regard to their actions. In home group, you get to talk about that extensively this week. We're called as believers to discern and make judgments about body life. So know that in Matthew 7, Jesus is not saying to never make biblically-based judgments. He is saying, though, To stay away from assumptions about others. Accusations about motives. When you have no idea whether you're right or wrong. I know I'm right. Thank you for that, Eliphaz. Um, But what is the basis of your certainty? Most of the time when we say things like, I know what you're thinking or I see what you're trying to do here, it's because what we would be thinking or what we would be trying to do if we were in the same spot. Our suspicions of others, in fact, are most often the result of an intimate knowledge of ourselves. You ever put two and two together and come up with six? All the time, son, all the time. Maybe you don't question someone's character because he or she is suffering. But maybe you subscribe to a stoic American way of handling suffering and you think others should do the same. Good gracious man, get a hold of yourself. Is that what you have said to Jesus at Lazarus' tomb when he wept? There is a place for encouraging others to put their trust in God. But be very careful if you've not suffered in the same way that someone else has suffered, or at least at the same level as your friend. There's a place for grief in the life of Jesus' disciples. It's fully acknowledged. Just think about the stoicism of that day that essentially said, the purpose of philosophy is to prepare for death. And the best way to prepare, prepare for death is not to expect anything good to happen in life. And don't get too excited when the good happens because the bad's coming. And if you don't expect too much, you won't. Look, talk about this more next week. Job couldn't have been hurt by his friends. If he didn't love them, if he didn't care for them. When we love deeply, and who ought to love more deeply than believers? When we love deeply, we hurt deeply. And we grieve. But our grief is undergirded with hope. 
The accusations that Job's friends leveled at him had a ring much like Satan's accusations, although they took a different track than Satan. One of the reasons that that many of us find it so hard to keep our hearts in the right places that we feel so judged by others and we are condemned in our own hearts as well. If you had just done this differently, if you had just, well, you that's coming from others and it's coming up here as much as it is anything. It shouldn't surprise us. Those kind of voices are going on all the time, all around us. Revelation 12.10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, this is the right kind of voice. Revelation 12.10. I think I've got that, Tony. I jumped around. In the... I don't have Revelation 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brother's has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. There is news here, there's information here, and there's good news here. First of all, Satan accuses us day and night, just like he did to Satan, I mean, to, about Job. He's up there saying, Chad Moody, come on, have you taken a look lately? Did you see anything that Debbie Stafford is doing hidden away down there in Columbia? Come on. He's accusing us day and night before the Father. But just like in Job's case, Satan doesn't have the last word. Jesus has the final word. We're going to close this morning looking at a New Testament text that tells us a great deal about God's purpose in our suffering and also about the judgment that took away Satan's right or anyone else's right to judge without biblical authority. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We are justified by faith in Jesus, not by our good works. Because we all are sinful apart from God's intervention in our life. Unless he does something, we have no hope of getting to him. But he did something. He sent Jesus. And when we believe that he suffered Our judgment, the judgment that we were due, and as we'll see in a few weeks, condemnation on Jesus, then the scripture can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He traded his righteousness for our sin. He became sin so that we might be made righteous. Job knew the mercy of the Lord. He accepted the grace that God bestowed on him. But he still lived with this law schematic in his mind. Live as you should and God will bless you. That was, after all, the Old Testament promise. Wasn't it? God said in the law, in Deuteronomy, if you will live by this law, I will bless you every way imaginable. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, your children will live long lives. Bunch of grandchildren, your flocks will grow. Everything will be good if you will live according to the law. Problem is, none of us can live according to the law. 
We all fail at some point, and we need to recognize that there's judgment based on our failure. But in the Old Testament, that played out. And it plays out, like I said last week, I think it was, when we live, individuals, corporations, nations live pretty much by biblical principles, things generally go better for you. That's just the way the earth is designed to go. But at some point, it all breaks down because it's a broken world. And we have to have Jesus (coughs) in our lives. Now, Job lived before any of the Old Testament scriptures were written. His knowledge of God was much like Abraham's because God had revealed himself to Job. Um, you know, I before all of this happened to Job, Job, maybe he would have approached his friends like this, but I doubt it. Job seems to have been a gracious man, understanding that anything he had came from the hand of the Lord. <clears throat> And I would imagine he would have offered sincere comfort, not assuming the worst about someone going through trials. It's clear that God's favor was on Job, even though God allowed this suffering in his life. Old Testament saints were saved the same way New Testament saints are saved, by faith. The object of their faith was different from ours. The object of our faith is is who? Jesus. Jesus did not live at that time But Old Testament saints believed in the promises of God. God told Abraham, I'll make your descendants like the stars in the sky. Too many to count. And Genesis tells us, and Romans tells us, and Hebrews tells us, Galatians tells us, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was made righteous by God when he believed God's promises. And God's promises were always pointing to something more. Remember that first promise in the Garden of Eden? Right along with with the punishment when God said to Eve, childbirth's not going to go easy for you. That's... That's a tough consequence for the fall. Childbirth's not going to go easy, but you know what? By your offspring, you're going to crush this serpent who has caused all, all of this, who has tempted you. And, gosh, this needs developing a whole lot more another day, but it all ties in. When, when Cain was born and Eve said, I've gotten me a man, she was almost certain that this was the seed that God had promised. But Cain instead turned out to be what? The first murderer in the Bible. But he was allowed to live, and it was his line that that developed culturally, technologically. And Seth's line, it was said about them, and people began to call on the name of the Lord. You ever wonder why we don't have the best musicians and the best artists? It's just kind of the way of it. It's not always the case. But don't be discouraged. Don't get so excited about an athlete who's a Christian. I mean, I'm grateful that he's a Christian. But don't ever think, if so-and-so could get saved, just think of what can... In other words, God, oh, if you would just save this guy, he could do a lot for you. God doesn't need any of us. 
when we believe the promises of God, we are made righteous. Job's suffering was pointing to Christ who would suffer God's wrath in our place. The benefit that we have on this side of the cross is that we can rejoice not only in the salvation that we have in Jesus, but also, verse 2, because of the access we have by faith right into this grace in which we stand, right into the very throne room of God. We have access because of Jesus. Job was saying, Where are you, God? What's happened? After Jesus, we can walk right into the throne room of God and know that we're there on Jesus, based on Jesus' blood, and that God will hear us. Paul says something in verse 3 that Job would have loved to have heard. Not only that, not only do we rejoice in our salvation and in this access that we have, but we rejoice in our suffering. That would have been useful information for Job. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us hope as you remember in the New Testament, is almost always associated with eternity. When all suffering is done, when we are with the Lord forever, and it starts with trials. Suffering helps build this hope. You know that suffering produces endurance. When you first go into a trial, you think, I cannot handle this. But years later, it turns out you could. And you were impatient at first. It has to be rectified. It has to be made right. But over time, you grow patient. And you know what else? You stop looking for this world to satisfy all your needs. You stop looking for everything in the here and now. And you start setting your hope on the future. Character is built in you. And then you develop this hope. You first enter difficulties in our right now, get out of trouble immediately kind of world. You panic and tend to try to get out, but over time, God does his work. You know, I used to think when people would say, oh, I'm tired of this world, or oh, I'm suffering, I sure wish Jesus would come back, I would think, wow, that's really not a good motivation. Well, I was wrong. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm past being wrong now, so you don't have to, yeah, that's, you know that's not true. Um, but, you know, I was reading this chapter one day, and I thought, no, wait a minute, look at this, connect, look at this process. Suffering produces endurance, which produces character, and character produces hope, and the Holy Spirit is filling our hearts and minds with this desire, this yearning, this longing to be with Jesus Suffering is a great motivation for wanting the Lord to come back. Suffering reminds us that this world is not our home. We were made for eternity until this world is restored to its rightful place. It's not home for us. In Jesus, we will find rest. So when Satan judges you, 
when others judge you, when you want to condemn yourself, and that could be the worst condemnation of all, remember this. Jesus took your judgment so that you might have life. Would you stand and let's read together the last section of Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. We're going to start reading um, in verse 6. And let's, let's read this together out loud. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Suffering in view of the cross.